My name is Sam and this is PhDs for Dummies. Hello everyone, uh, first of all I want to wish you guys all a very happy new year and hopefully 2021 will be a year with, with without too many restrictions as we had in uh, 2020. Um, for now I am very delighted to present you, you the talk that I had with uh, Meindocht Venema, uh, which name we translated to Mike Venema. Um, Mike is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Amsterdam and for his PhD dissertation, he studied um, international networks of banks and industry industries by uh, interlocking them. Um, Mike also is a former member of the Dutch Communist Party, and this influenced his work quite a bit because he, uh, as we will talk about, he, he likes to use uh, Leninist or Marxist uh, theories. Um, and besides that, he has a rather impressive publishing records, which... Um, does not only limit itself to, to uh, academic writing, but also uh, biographies of, for example, uh, the politician, uh, Dutch politician Geert uh, Wilders. Um, well, I really liked the, the conversation with Mike, and I truly admire his efforts to promote academic freedom uh, on universities, um, which is so important for, for doing research. And therefore, I think um, there is no doubt that academic freedom should be preserved uh, as good as we can. I hope you guys enjoy listening to it as much as I did uh, talking to uh, Mike. Enjoy. Uh, hi, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to have you on the show. Um, can you maybe briefly introduce yourself to the audience and uh, say a few words on what keeps you busy at the moment? Well, I'm still writing, and I just finished a, a review for uh, comparative political studies on uh, on on the uh, contact hypotheses and uh, voting for the for the radical right in Europe, which is one of my my topics. And uh, I'm busy writing a novel at the moment. A novel, indeed. Um, and on yourself, like, um, what have you done in your life so far? I mean, obviously, quite a bit. Well, I, you know, I'm nearly 75, so I've done quite a bit, yeah. And uh, I, I started studying, st I studied sociology in the 60s, and then I changed to political science. Uh, I studied uh, sociology in Utrecht, and I then uh, uh, went to the University of Amsterdam to study uh, political science. That was in 1969, and I've stayed there forever. So I, I have actually worked for the University of Amsterdam since 71, and uh, I worked there until 2013, which is quite a Fair. long time. Yeah, I was about to say that's quite, it's quite an impressive record of, of uh, working at the university, right? And then people say, aren't you, you know, isn't it boring to, to, to teach political science and, and, and study political science for so long time at the same institutions? And my answer, well, my answer is, well, I did indeed uh, do it at the same institution, but I changed quite a bit in terms of topics. That is to say, I, I started out as a Marxist and I studied um, interlocking directorates uh, among big corporations, among transnational corporations. And then I went into racism and colonialism. Then I, I went into studying uh, uh, interlocking directorates within ethnic community and social capital of minority groups. So that's quite a diverse agenda, right? Uh, so yeah, and then and then on top of that, I studied for a, for a long time uh, radical right wing parties. Yeah, so that makes you quite a diverse publisher, I would say, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, well, now you're a, a professor uh, emeritus, right? Um, and that 
obviously implies that you wrote a dissertation uh, uh, at one point uh, uh, in your academic career. Um, can you maybe uh, elaborate on that? What was that exactly on? Well, it was actually when I uh, became a student assistant, that was in, in 71, um, I did, I worked at the Europe Institute that were institutions, uh, that were university institutions that were set up by and with the money of the early forms of European of the European Union. And they were meant to, to support European integration and, and to support um, research uh, on how to, to come to a, a, a better understanding of Europe and a better uh, understanding of European integration. And um, at that time, I, I, did, I, I became quite a radical student and I decided to uh, set, set up my own research which was more focused, which was a Marxist, critical Marxist, which was focused on imperialism rather than mm -hmm. uh, European integration. And, um, and so we had with, the, with, a, with a group of like-minded students, a, a, a research group on, on different theories and histories of, of imperialism. And was that still funded by the, the research department where you were a research assistant? Well, that was all funded by the research department. And it, but I had to be supervised by uh, uh, university professors because I, I hadn't written my master's thesis yet. And so I wasn't actually formally um, qualified to, to lead a research group. So it was, yeah. it was in the kind of this kind of 60s idea that you could if you were powerful, you know, if you were uh, cheeky enough, so to speak, <laughs> you say, well, I'm, I'm an expert on this, or we want to be an expert on this. And I, I collected a number of uh, supervising professors around me, and these were not only left-wing professors, also some right-wing professors who, who thought it was interesting to support inquisitive students. Yeah, so in a sense, it was quite a bold move to do that. But I think, I mean, a lot of professors or intellectuals, they, they, they like these bold moves, right? To, to... Yeah, and especially more liberal, but more right-wing professors. Strangely, <laughs> it were rather the left-wing professors who were, who were hesitant to support us. And the right-wing professors said, well, this is, this is the first, it's a good idea. Young people should be inquisitive and all that. Yeah, I mean... So... At a certain point in time, it became very ambitious, over ambitious, especially in, in terms of theory. And then one of the um, professors at the, at the Department of Political Science, who was a mathematician, had uh, done research on interlocking directorates in the Netherlands. And his um, Pre preliminary results were called traces of power, and he said, "Well, when you look at the at the network of interlocking directorates in Holland, you can see that there is a, a dense network of of um, uh, big linkers uh, who who connect the network of connect the corporate network together, and also link it to to the." Um, to the government mm -hmm. and so actually it was concluded that it was not parliament that that um, ruled in in the Netherlands it, it were the the big companies which yeah. was of course a very kind of radical left-wing conclusion well i mean yes in a sense it is it's, it's quite radical but i think in practical it's uh, I mean, I think a lot of people nowadays still think the same, right? That it's eventually it's the money that talks, in a sense. Yeah, but at that time it was it was taken by it was for taken as an as, a, as an offense by the by the yeah. more liberal uh, right and right wing uh, professors and also by the corporate elite itself. Yeah, of course, Wayne. <laughs> um, I still remember that one of the big. Uh, corporate executives uh, in Holland, a, a banker, uh, was invited to to uh, to have an interview at Dutch television, and he 
he was willing to do that on the condition that he took his own interviewer with him. Can you imagine <laughs> that you go to CNS, C, uh, yes, uh, CNN, and say, look, you know, I'm willing to be interviewed, but I, I pick my own interviewer. And it's the, actually a person I take with me to the studio. Yeah. So that was, the, that was kind of the context. And, um, and then I suddenly thought, well, this, uh, because yeah, there's another thing. The professor who did that was a mathematician, and he was the first to, um, to, to, to write and develop computer programs that could analyze uh, large networks. And then you kind of took it, took the leap, right, and made it like more international. Yeah, exactly. Because then I thought, if you, if I'm studying transnational corporations, then you could do the same at the international level and um, and investigate the international networks of banks and industry, which was a, which was precisely the title of my dissertation. Yeah. And uh, although it took me some years. Eventually, I defended my, my uh, PhD in 81, and in 82, I, a, 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 what do you call it, a commercial... Yeah, you promoted, right? Yeah. It was published in the United States, which was, which was quite an honor, you know, in, in normally in, in Holland. First, you not, not everybody yet published, uh, wrote a, a, a dissertation in English. Most of, yeah. the, most of the dissertations were still written in Dutch. And then secondly, very few uh, publishing houses of any international standing would publish a dissertation. And also, I th I was thinking, because I saw the same, and I was thinking, also because your, your uh, dissertation, I mean, it's not, not like extremely Marxist, but you use uh, you make use of, of um, Marxist theories, right? Um, and I thought it was interesting that uh, like a publishing house in the US uh, at that time was publishing it, uh, uh, obviously with uh, uh, the US being like anti-communist, anti-Marxist, uh, you know? Well, like, there's a, a, a funny anecdote uh, related to my the publication of my book, I had defended my thesis, and then I presented um, um, a um, my, uh, my I presented the, the, the manuscript uh, to one of my co-supervisors, who was a quite famous economist at the time, Harvey de Jong. He 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 was he is one of the few European economists who uh, ever testified for the. U.S. Senate on antitrust <laughs> hearings, and he uh, he had a um, a book series called the Nairode uh, Studies in Industrial Organization, and um, and he had therefore he was the editor of this book series. He also was co uh, director of my thesis, and he he said when I when I presented this manuscript to him. Eventually, he said, "Yeah, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna publish it." But on, well, I still have to warn you. I do it together with Jacquemin, who was, who was a French-speaking Belgian guy, mm -hmm. also a specialist in industrial organization. And he said, "We have, we have as a kind of commitment that if one of us, um, if one of us uh, objects to a manuscript, we, we, we won't argue. Then it's off." Yeah. And um, and then he he phoned me and he said no. Then the editor uh, phoned me. The the editor of the publishing house phoned me and and said to said to me, well, we can't publish it because Jacquemin uh, is against it. And um, so I was in tears and I phoned <laughs> my co-director and I said, I said to him, what happened? Yeah, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't want to publish it and. Um, yeah, you know how how we how we organize, we are organized. So yeah, I'm afraid we can't publish it. But I'll phone him up. And then again, two weeks later, I got a, a note from the publishing house that uh, the the manuscript would be published. Later on, I said to uh, Harvey de Jong, "So what did what did you do?" He said, "Well, I <laughs> I, I phoned Jacquemin." 
And um, and Jacques said, um, well, I didn't read it, <laughs> but it was Marxist. <laughs> and we shouldn't <laughs> uh, uh, we shouldn't publish Marxist stuff. And then, so I said to my co my, my supervisor, so what did you say? And then he said, well, I said to Jacques, well, he may be a Marxist, but he's a reasonable man. Jacques <laughs> <And then laughs> said, okay, in that case, we, we, I go along. So, you know, that's how sometimes um, important decisions are made. Yeah, fair enough. It's an example of the, of the old boys' network. Yeah, I see. It's. I mean, it definitely shows how important it is, right? To 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 have your connections and your network. Um, on that, on the same note of your uh, your the Marxist uh, theme, um, I was kind of intrigued. Like, what makes you what made you attract so much to to Marxist ideas? Because uh, I mean, when when I read your dissertation, um, I remember the paper that I wrote on um, on uh, John Hobson on an imperialist. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, theory and I thought I thought the theory was really really cool and I was I mean I was not as intrigued as you are uh, uh, also in your in your book but I think it's very interesting but I was wondering what like kind of strikes to you when uh, uh, what uh, what do you like about these theories the the Marxist uh, or imperialist angle? Well, um, they're they're they tend to be very profound, right? So, yeah, yeah, so when yeah. you read Marx. And you realize that you that this Marx is a very learned man, and that's one. So it's not a you know it's not fluffy. It's not fluffy stuff. It's really solid stuff, and yeah. uh, it's very historical. So so uh, people who, who, most Marxists who, who write uh, uh, serious Marxists, I mean, uh, have an enormous knowledge um, about history. Yeah, I think that, that it's true. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah. Well, that, so that's very attractive, um, and then it, it. The the other thing is that uh, Marxism does indeed uh, go very go, go, does um, uh, go well with empirical research. That doesn't say doesn't mean to say that most Marxists do empirical research, but some do. And uh, and the empirical research of these Marxists is very impressive. Yeah, it's rather accurate, right? I think um, that's the thing that I really like about it is that, I mean, yes, it does a great job in explaining uh, different phenomena or explaining how the world works kind of. But the thing that always lacks for me is that it doesn't really give a solution or it doesn't, or the solution is maybe too uh, utopian in a sense. No, that's, I mean, we're not talking about solutions. We're not talking about Marxism as an ideology so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More uh, kind of um, uh, a, a, a way of studying, right? Like way a, of studying. Uh, and, and if you, for example, I don't know whether you, you know, Tocqueville. No, 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 I'm not familiar with Well, he, he is an, um, a, a great um, um thinker about democracy and he is not Marxist at all he he is rather considered as a kind of yeah liberal conservative but when yeah. you look at the way he studies things it's very much also along the lines that he looks at the economic structures and then relates these economic structures to 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 political and cultural structures and and consider this whole thing as a whole without uh, denying that th these are different levels of analysis. Yeah. So in a way, it kind of like this this way of thinking captures multiple dimensions, right? Not just ju not just focuses on on one aspect of, of of something. Right. Right. And and so I've always uh, and the funny thing was that the Harvey um, uh, Young, who was the f the famous economist. Who uh, who has been uh, uh, has been uh, witness at the U.S. Senate? He was not uh, a a Marxist at all, mm -hmm. but he he always liked to discuss his research with Marxists because he said these people tend to have an yeah are inquisitive and they have 
new insights which I can c consider. You know, yes. it's, so this this was kind of funny, but you have to realize that uh, my uh, approach to uh, to scientific investigation was also kind of at odds with the uh, uh, the, the student culture in the sixties. I was kind of ex expelled from the student movement nearly because I did this kind of empirical research. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's very weird, right? Because at that time in the sixties and the nineties, at least, um, how would you describe the, the student culture? Well, it, it was a, in a way quite anti-intellectual. And so if I remember, still remember that, that just wanting to write a PhD was kind of rejected because it was, it was an expression of ambition. And ambition yeah. was already bad in itself. You should because then you would become like one of the elites and or like bureaucracy, right? Exactly. So my my uh, my, my position was more that uh, I'm not against elites, but uh, you should have different elites than what we had at that time. And do you think the elites changed, like um, from the '60s on to to now? Absolutely, but with the benefit of hindsight, I I have become somewhat more uh, uh, more lenient, if not e even positive, about the uh, some aspects of the conservative elite. Mm -hmm. And why why so? Um, because some of these conservatives tended to have very. Um, a very principled uh, principle, um, conception of, of, of academic freedom and liberty. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking because, um, I mean, uh, your dissertation um, uh, touches upon elites, right? The elites of banking industries and what have you. Um, and uh, in your uh, in other book that I just read, you know, there's also a lot uh, on about elites. And it seems like not maybe a obsession but like i think you focus a lot on elites and it made me wonder like what what fascinates you so much about about this this uh, specific group in uh, society well from from a personal point of view I, i'm not coming from an elite background background so i, I wanted to join them and then to not to join them is to know how they are yeah and yeah. Uh, that's that's the, the let's say the more prosaic, we call it the, the more uh, down-to-earth uh, explanation. And then, of course, elites are the powers that be. So yeah. if you want to study power and power relations, you, you, you have to study the elites. So like, because they yield so much power, it's, it's, you think it's important to, to study them, right? Yeah. And, and, um, and then thirdly, I do not think we can do without elites. Uh, so the whole idea of having a society without elites is a it, it's a dystopia. Mm -hmm. So you, 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 there, there's the, the 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 societies where they have said we sh we don't want elites anymore are are normally societies where uh, violence is. Uh, a way of governing. So then you would say, like the the, the likes of China or, or uh, Soviet Soviet Union, uh, yeah, Soviet Union under Stalin. Uh. Yeah. So especially especially Cultural Revolution under Mao was, of course, a a rebellion against traditional elites, uh, classical pianists were had broken fingers because they, they to to play uh, the piano was kind of a bourgeois activity and all these kind of things and and they were just replaced by a by a new elite that was much more decadent and horrendous and 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 gruesome than the old elite but what is it then because um i mean i completely agree and i think it's also in like elites like countries there's always an elite somewhere, you know, and but for me, there's this question then, like, why then are people still, I mean, you can still support, like, uh, let's say communism or what have you, but that these people actually believe that there is 
noting as elite, but then if the, the system is in place, there's always this elite. And then often these, the people that initiate the, the, the parties, they become the elite. And then all of a sudden it's, it's fine, right? Yeah, and that, that has to do, with, of course, also with the paradox of democracy. Because one of the other things I didn't mention is that I, eventually I became a professor of political theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've specialized on uh, the theory of democracy. And, and when, you, when you talk about populism, actually, that's a very democratic ideology. Yeah. yeah it says that uh, the power to the people and the people should rule sovereign. And the only uh, trick is, of course, that um, um, then the populace says, and yeah, you know what? I happen to be the voice of the people. Yeah. And you are not. You are the enemy of the people. And you're a, you're a false... Uh, a false... Um, representative or what have you. Representative. You're, you're cheating the people. I am the true representative of the, of the people. And, um, and you know what? Um, uh, Robespierre, who was the leader of the, of the Jacobins in, during the French Revolution, he, he was, of course, the, 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 the most, uh, yeah, the most uh, eminent, eminent example, yeah. example of, a, of a democratic leader that went that became a tyrant, mm-hmm. and uh, and he wanted to um, to to kill the king as a symbolic act. You know, you if you kill the king, if you if you if the king goes to the scaffold, then you have killed authority. Yeah, right. And so it was more than just a a, a human cruelty. It was um, was the expression of the ultimate. Um, attack on traditional authority, yeah, and um, and so killing the, the 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 king was an act of liberation, of ultimate liberty of the people, and he then the people who didn't want to kill the king, uh, some of them some of them were his friends. You know, you had people in the Jacobin circles that said why 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 kill the king why not just send him to the united states then he yeah. can <laughs> learn how nice it is to live in a democracy and so but but um, but uh, robespierre wanted wanted the king to be killed just for an example yeah, right and then um, the 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 province of of lyon so the the lyon was a, was an industrial town at that time and they rejected uh, the, the execution of the king. And then he sent his most famous general to Lyon to destroy the city. And his argument was, Lyon has, re- has rejected liberty. Lyon doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. That's the ultimate uh, Jacobin conception of democracy. Mm-hmm. So it's either like you're with us or you're against us, like that kind of like sentiment. And that was, of course, also the um, uh, the sentiment in communism. I've been a member of the Communist Party for a very long time. So so it was um, to study um, to study radical right wing parties, and is actually a right wing form of communism, and and it was a kind of um, repentance. You say that repentance. Yeah, yeah, I think you can say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how how that's from a, a personal point of view. Yeah, um, but then from I mean I think your personal view is is very interesting and the the, the switch you kind of took. Um, what made you then decide that okay maybe this is not the way I want to study or this is not the way that I want to pursue um, uh, uh, my career or my uh, uh, like your academia in a sense. Oh well, you mean, you mean how I how I left the field of corporate um, interlocks and and elite studies? Yeah, or maybe also just the the communist angle from it. Yeah, that was not so much a direct and conscious decision. You have to realize that uh, that during the seventies, Marxism and the study of the corporate elite was very popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
there was a new upswing uh, in in uh, scientific research on elites, corporate elites, and, and imperialism. And in that upswing, my my research took place. But then, in the eighties, um, the whole upswing went down. And when you look at the at my citation index, you see that my dissertation was cited quite a bit in the early eighties. And then the citations drop, and they only come back in the in the uh, in the in the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. revival of the study of corporate interlocks and of interested of interest in in elites and corporate elites and imperialism. So actually, I was without a topic. <laughs> you see, because yeah. nobody wanted to read anymore on this topic, and and then I I this and I I was also interested in race and and ethnic relations, and then I I was affiliated to the Institute for Migration and Ethnic Studies, and they wanted, uh, for some reason, study um, minorities, uh, ethnic minorities. And so they, 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 there was a, a small group of, of researchers, and I, I was part of them. And then I said, well, if you, if you want to uh, study um, ethnic minorities and their organizations, then you study actually uh, social capital among uh, ethnic minorities. And how do you measure social capital? You do that by, by um, measuring the amount of organizations they have. Yeah. And the, the, the linkages between these organizations. So then you have interlocking again, right? Like yeah. Kind of, so yeah. then I said, well, and I, I know how to study such networks because I've done so with the corporate elite. Yeah. And so I, 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 I transferred my interest from the corporate elite to the elite of minority, uh, uh, ethnic minorities. Yeah. And there, of course, I could show that um, um, a solid elite, a well-organized elite, has has many positive effects on on democracy. Yeah, because if you if you're a well-organized elite, uh, and you you're a, if you're a member of a of a minority that has a well-organized elite, it I can prove we have proven that then you have a lot of political trust, a political yeah. self-confidence. You the turnout is high, and you trust even the local political structure much more than than you you would have otherwise. Because we could we were fortunate enough enough to to be able to compare different ethnic minorities, and we could demonstrate that uh, the ethnic minority that were weakly organized. Had lower trust and had lower voting turnout than the the uh, minorities that had a high uh, level of um, internal organization. Yeah, the first like uh, uh, example that pops in my mind for that is maybe like the Jewish League in in the U.S. Right? I mean, they are very their their institutions or their framework is very well organized, and well, consequently, they have a lot of power. I would say. Yeah, but also their their rank and file has a, has trust in the local authorities. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, worth if you if you look at the um, black community, especially in the U.S. Yeah, you see that the, one of the one of the uh, or um, down downsides of the black community is the the lack of organization. It's not the fact that they are organized um, in segregation. But it's the problem is mainly that they're not organized at all. Yeah. And so we could also find out that that um, a re- a religious organization is also good for democracy. Because it diversifies, or why is that? Well, it's because uh, anything that that gets you organized makes you uh, makes you more more. Influential and more self-confident. Yeah, and it's you know it's when you look at the uh, civil rights movement, you see that uh, a lot of their leaders and important lead and yeah, a lot of their leaders 
stem from from the Baptist Church. And as, and in terms of the white uh, civil right people, they were quite often Jewish. So in that in that in that situation, to to uh, you know, to, uh, a part of the well organized black community joined forces with the with the Jewish yeah the Jewish uh, community. community. Yeah, I think that's very that's a that's a fair point to make to say that. Well, it shows the importance of, of organizing, right? And of, of state capacity in, or maybe, I mean, state capacity in states so that states can actually put out some real uh, uh, output is as important in organizations in, in minorities, uh, I would say, yeah. Um, on that note, maybe on the note we earlier discussed, um, we talked about that uh, in the 60s or 70s, um, well, students were not very tolerant, again, like towards different ideas or towards uh, uh, the sense of uh, liberty uh, among students, right? Or in academia. Um, do you think that's something inherited to, inherited to students? Because I feel like in some way, it's this is still kind of the case. In, in, uh... oh, yeah, well... Um... We we would we had been talking about this um, before this interview yeah, that you're you're from the University College Maastricht right yeah that's right that's right I've always I said I've always been related to the University of Amsterdam but um, later after I was um, I retired I worked for a year at the Utrecht University College yeah and, um, and I was struck by the fact that this the the students. At these colleges, at this Utrecht University College, were, was not not only very elite, you know, all all parents of these students, nearly all parents, are well to do, and then yeah, for, for sure, <laughs> percent of the students that is not well to do, and they always have to to perform because the dean has to say, well, we have also some minority students here. Come on, <laughs> Abigail. And then Abigail has to say that she's so happy to be here among these white youngsters and they're all, and there's no racism at, racism at the... At the university, yeah. So, but you, you see that this is... Um, it's a very tight community. And and I was, I was, uh, st I was struck by the... Uh, lack of, of lack of tolerance in this at this campus. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't I, I can't talk for. Huh? I said I can't talk for the University College uh, Utrecht, but I think, um, in general, like the, the people that go to university colleges or like the the whatever you the, the mentality is kind of the same everywhere. And it's actually very interesting because in the first year, um, uh, me and two peers we did a research on. Uh, uh, the uh, the intolerance of uh, conservative students uh, in 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 like University College Maastricht, and it was actually very uh, uh, it showed out or turned out that actually everyone was aware of the fact, even the people that were more uh, uh, leftist or what have you, they were aware of the fact that conservative students um, well did not really speak up during tutorials or, or anything because there is this kind of echo chamber uh, 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 in a sense. Yeah. And so, so you did you you did research on their uh, their conservatism. Yeah, yeah. So basically, we looked at uh, um, well, we did surveys and we kind of uh, uh, asked students of the university college itself um, their views, their political views, etc. And we found out that um, well, first of all, there's only like ten percent of conservative students maybe in in the university college, but it's also that. Um, even like the people that are not conservative, they acknowledge the fact that um, there is this kind of, well, echo chamber of, of ideas against conservat uh, conservatism, which makes uh, conservative people or people that just want to have a debate and want to have like their, their freedom, their academic liberty kind of, um, they, they acknowledge that they are less inclined to speak up um, during the tour. So that was very interesting uh, to see. Yeah, and how did the dean react? Well, it was actually funny because um, so we just put out the, the research. It was in the first year, so um, I mean, it was a good research, but it was not like great. And then um, it's actually funny because we never actually published it or send it to a dean or what have you. But then um, at one point, actually, the the, uh, the department or like the, the the dean reached out to us and asked for the, the study because they wanted to 
to look at it in, in like some meeting, uh, I don't know. But uh, after that, we actually never heard something from it. But I was already surprised that they um, actually took the effort to, to look at it. Yeah, you should have you should have asked money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe we should have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe because I also read it your in one of your books. Um, you also came up with a study, right? And someone kind of stole your idea. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, or you, you came up with something, right? Um, I can't recall it, but I think there was like this passage in the book that said that you came up with a study or with an essay or an idea, and that then an international scholar kind of uh, 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 took your idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was very interesting. Uh, uh, I did as a master thesis. I did. Um, research on the European car industry yeah, at yeah. The, at the, after the Second World War. And um, I consider, because that, that was really, really related to my, my co, um, my, the, the interest of my co-director who was, um, who had written a book on the product life cycle. Yeah. And, um, and I had, I, I had this idea, let's look at the European car industry and consider it as a second product life cycle, and this time of small cars, because the, the American industry was all big cars, right? Yeah, like the powerhouses. And then in Europe, you got you, the, 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 the democratization of society, uh, which started in, in the United States at the early uh, 19th century, started only after the war. So then suddenly, the let's say the middle classes started to buy cars yeah and these cars were small because we have small countries so you had a german small car the the um, um the, the the volkswagen and then you had the french uh, de chevaux and and the americans lost lost a lot of market in Europe because they didn't have they had no feeling with small cars anyway so that that was a kind of a, um, a, a very interesting study in my opinion it was published in 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 Dutch and in German but not in English <laughs> not in English it was presented at an international congress in English mm -hmm. and then um, a few years later I was reading a book uh, edited by Raymond Vernon from the Harvard Business School, and I saw a, a in that book was a chapter on the European car industry. Yeah, so it was your idea. <laughs> yeah, and it was just a copy of my master thesis written by a certain man called Wells. And, well, I thought I've been working at the Frontier of Science because the Harvard Business School did, does the same thing as I've done. So I was really <laughs> kind of happy. And then another five years later, um, I was phoned by a, by a student, or a PhD student called Cohen, and he said, yeah, I'm here in Amsterdam, and my supervisor, I'm studying the, um, the product life cycle of the car industry in Brazil. And he said, my supervisor says, if you, if you're in Amsterdam, don't forget to call on uh, Professor Fanema because he knows everything about the European car industry. <laughs> and then I realized that he must have stolen my my thesis. Your idea, yeah. He never re referred to it in his chapter, but he knew still my name, and he was, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, brutal enough to not be ashamed of that, but just send his student to have an interview with me. Yeah. So then I thought, well, you know, these, these Harvard Business School people, they're really a bunch of criminals, but very high, high qualified criminals. Yeah, of course. I mean, like they have to get their ideas from somewhere, right? <laughs> but but on, that, on that note, like, do you think like academic integrity, like, is that... How is it, is it like very, how does it work? Is there a lot of like steal it or like of these practices that you just, uh, the, the anecdote you just told or are these practices very common? My advice should be never get 
turned down by that. You know, the idea that you should protect your ideas or your data is yeah. is, is is a very un, unfruitful sentiment and strategy because you get bent. I mean, like I tell this now, I'm still happy that this Wells was um, kind enough to steal my my idea master thesis because otherwise it would never have gotten anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, actually, one of my heroes is Robert Putnam, bowling along and making democracy work. And he did work on um, ethnic minorities, you know, the social capital of, of um, ethnic minorities in American cities. He was very much impressed by by our work in on the ethnic minorities in Amsterdam. So he, you know, he my my co uh, author was invited to. To come to uh, uh, to to the Kennedy uh, Institute yeah. there in Cambridge, and I was there as well. He was very, you know, we were good friends, and he uh, had already published his data on his website uh, before he had written anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, I, I." <laughs> I, I say on the you know on the, uh, down and at my website and say if you use my data please refer to the source of it. But yeah. you never you, you never can be sure that they do it. But what what you know? What use is it to do research if you're not going to share it with with? I think that's that's the whole point, right? Of that you like to do research and you want to contribute to to the debate and to academia and society in general. So why then would you like? Try to protect everything. In, in, in right, right, and eventually, I mean, you can be. Maybe, if you, if you, if if they, if you plagiarize, that's an honor. That means that they, 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 they like <laughs> your stuff so much that they want to copy it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very uh, interesting look at plagiarism. <laughs> I would say. Um, Maybe for uh, uh, the last question, um, I always end uh, the episodes with a question on uh, uh, the favorite memory of, of the people I interview on their PhD uh, adventure. So, I mean, that's also the same question for you. So, which uh, what is the one memory of your PhD adventure that you cherish the most? Uh, okay, well, I'll tell you the anecdote which I like most. Um, as I said, the, the, the Professor Mocken, who was the, actually the... Um, the inventor of, of uh, quantitative network analysis. And so he has f made the foundation of Facebook and, and yeah. Instagram and all that. And um, he he was right wing, relatively speaking. He had been um, a Marine officer and I was a communist. So we, we did not agree on anything except that you should study networks. <laughs> And um, and we and when we were at the at the at an international conference, we you know there were we always were fighting on political issues, and um, then especially the Germans who are very uh, very authoritarian lot, uh, they saw us fighting and then they thought oh oh boy oh boy there is this PhD student who's losing his position as uh, as PhD student. And they were completely surprised that four hours later we we were the same two people were drinking a lot of alcohol in the middle of the night, <laughs> having great fun together. Ha ha ha! So yeah. that that was really something that um, has been a very uh, um, yeah a very emotional memory because I realized that due to this man who was a marine officer and said well I don't care whether you're a communist or not I hate communism and I hate communists but you're my student and that is the real spirit in academics and that's why I now my my my, my last PhD student possibly will be um, a, a prominent member of the radical right party, Party of Freedom in Holland, and so I'm I'm also proud that as a left winger, uh, I'm still the, the su supervising a a, a a a student. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah, a student that you're not necessarily like associate way like political. Student. And so yeah. that is what I think should be. Uh, that's the heart of the 
academic culture. And if you lose that, then you lose the then you lose your freedom. And so I, I quite often then I have colleagues who say, and you, so you're supervising this racist man. And I said, you mean to say that racists are not, you should not allow racists to write a PhD? Is that what you say? And then they start hesitating. <laughs> but anyway, that's so. That's that's my my um, your personal view on it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a beautiful uh, note to 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 uh, stop the episode. And I think it's it's interesting to see that throughout like this chat and throughout like the things I've read from you is that kind of two things always come up, which is one like networks, so interlocking networks, and secondly that you're all, always um, well even though you joined the communists, et cetera, but you were still kind of tolerant and you always wanted to discuss ideas and be, be um, stand yeah, in, and in one, for... one more thing, one advice to people who want to network, you only network successfully if you look for people who are not like you. <laughs> people who search in the reception for people like them, they're bad networkers. Yeah, I agree. For people who are not like you, because that's where your weak links come in, and that's how you extend your network. I think that's a that's a beautiful and very worthwhile advice. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Mike, for for uh, taking the time for this show. Uh, I think it was great having you here, and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, excuse my English. Pardon <laughs> my English. No worries. I think the listeners will be fine with it. Well, that was uh, Mike, who definitely proved to be as good uh, in storytelling as in doing academic research. <laughs> uh, I think his dissertation was uh, was very compelling, uh, nevertheless. And uh, one should also keep in mind that uh, interlocking in political science uh, was very unconventional back in the 70s. And in that way, I think uh, Mike did something new for uh, political science in the Netherlands, at least. Um, more importantly, uh, I think, was Mike's uh, last contribution in the talk, which was more about uh, uh, the, the importance of academic freedom. And he, he stressed uh, how, much he th how much he thinks that's important. And I wholeheartedly uh, share that opinion. Um, and more on, on that topic can be found in Mike's publications, which I will uh, put a link in uh, in the description. Uh, and for now, uh, take care and... Make sure you make it through what's hopefully the last months of COVID-19.